0: Yeah, the work of Berlinian K is one of those fundamental, um, fundamental moments in, in linguistics and also cognition and also color science. It's a fascinating triangle or even more, I don't know how many sides this polygon has because everybody relies on it. But basically, they were trying to understand that, that dorm room question, is your red my red? And, and more importantly, if your language doesn't have the word for red, do you still see it?
1: You're listening to Science for the People. I'm Carolyn Wilkie, a science journalist and one of your hosts. Today I'm talking with Adam Rogers about his new book, Full Spectrum, How the Science of Color Made Us Modern. Adam is also the author of Proof, the Science of Booze, and a senior correspondent at WIRED. Our conversation today takes us across time and through many cultures to learn about how humans have explored and interacted with colors across history. We talk about some of the earliest colors created by humans and how new technology aims to make colors that exist only in the mind. Thanks so much for joining me today, Adam. My
0: pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Just want to start with, you know, why this book? You mentioned, you know, pretty early on that over the past five hundred years or so, um, there have been something like three thousand, two hundred books about color, and yet you found more to share. So what are the questions about color that drove you to write this book?
0: I know. What was wrong with me? Once I realized that there were thirty five hundred books on the books, as it were, it's like, oh well maybe try something else i don't you know like um no i i um i have uh as in many as is true with many things i have both the long version and the short version of that answer and the short version of the answer is i got obsessed about 20 years ago now with a specific pigment a specific human made thing that we use to give other stuff color so it has a color and we use it to give things color and the reason i'm i'm Uh, Like perseverating on that definition is that when it comes to the words that we use to talk about color, that's part of the fun part. Um, Because when we talk about color, we humans mean a whole lot of different things all at once, and and untangling those is part of what the book eventually came to be about. But I got obsessed with this stuff called titanium dioxide, TiO2, which is one of the emblematic modern pigments. It was. discovered slash invented in 1908 and it became kind of a hallmark of the what some historians others have called the chromatic revolution of changing the way uh human beings made a colorful environment and i just got really into that because the stuff is ubiquitous in human-made things it's in paint and paper and um, plastics and pills and food and all sorts of stuff but but it also it was part it ended up being part of the of, of antitrust um in the in the 20s and it was uh it has possible uses as a self-cleaning surface anyway i got really obsessed with this stuff um and that led to trying to understand how how pigments and how color in general worked as part of a um as part of technique as part of a um a human made thing and then you have to distinguish that i realize you have to distinguish that from color out in the universe from the color that comes off of stars and that would exist even if there was nobody with an eyeball and a brain to look at it and and so things sort of mushroomed from there but then the it, it, i said that was the short version so that was obviously a lie but a longer even longer version is that i realized i've always um cared about this kind of thing that i did a a middle school science project um a very very long time ago trying to understand how the eye worked and saw color but also it, even then i i did this um <laughs> pathetic little version of of some experimental science in my class at the time where i showed showed uh pictures of different colors and asked people to write down what color they saw because i wanted to know even then the answer to that kind of dorm room question like wow is that is your red the same as my red man you know and uh it, and it turned out that that was actually i didn't know this at the time of course because i was tan or whatever but it turned out that that was the one of the classic experiments in linguistics and color science and neurobiology and all the other fields that come together to try to understand color and how people see it and make it, um, is to try to figure out the the difference, if there is one, between the, the words we use for colors, the colors that we actually see that our eyeballs pick up, and the way that our brains interpret those colors and build a, a, a colorful um, gestalt in our own heads. So uh, it, that gets to a, the, the sort of deeper questions that I guess are part of the undercurrent one of the chapters, at least in the my first book, which is about the science of alcohol, um, because that's a lot of that is about smell and taste. And so I'm trying to understand kind of a, the the way that we live in a natural world and in a built world and have these kind of imperfect sensors studying our body, mostly on our heads that take in the physical world and turn it into a neurobiological one and trying to understand what that. Is like to move through the universe.
1: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, but it sort of seems <laughs> sorry like, about that. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's great. It seems like this, you know, this is at the intersection of you know what we perceive and how we share it with other people, and then there's a lot of biology and chemistry and history that's all underneath it. So let's let's maybe pick one place to start. I want to start with um, a quote from from your book. We can maybe you can give me some examples. Here's the quote. Um, I think this is from the introduction, it's we learn to see, and then we learn to create, and then we learn more about what, how we see from what we've created. It's a grand oscillation between seeing and understanding. So I guess, can you give um, the audience an example of how people swing back and forth between the seeing and understanding and creating?
0: Yeah, I I think um, it, as much as I would hesitate as a science reporter to try to come up with, you know, grand theories of of history, it really did strike me in doing the research and reporting for the book, that there was this, as I said, this oscillation between kind of seeing what colors and light were like in the world, trying to understand it better for whatever that whatever a given era's science was, and then making something new, and then that starting the process all over again for seeing those colors anew and 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 sparking a new understanding of how the science worked. So, I mean, one way to one one place that that kind of took place was like in the in the roughly the period of the Tang Dynasty in China and the Abbasid Empire, um, the Abbasid Caliphate, uh, which in, in part in the Arab world, which were the twin poles of the Silk Road, um, so this is like the seven hundreds and eight hundreds um, common era, where one of the most uh, sought after products were um, were early porcelain, ceramics, and porcelain, and one of the things that drove those that uh, desire what drove that market the certainly the properties of the material itself because it was strong and light it was good storage but also the colors that you would apply to it so as an example there was a um a real tension in there's a particular version of this stuff called blue and white which is a prosaic name for it because it was in fact blue and white it's basically a white surface with blue designs on it and um there's a controversy in the field of the chemists and material science and other folks who study this stuff about who came up with the blue pigment that they used in the blue glaze and it looks it seems like from some of this history that what happened was the because it depends on which material you have access to so you can make which pigment but like chinese porcelain makers came up with a blue pigment exported it to the arab world and then the arab world tried to figure out their own blue pigment cuz they wanted it so much cuz they liked it and it was expensive and you could have a market for it and then they they became there got to be a trade between the two and then more places tried to start make more tried to start to make more of the blue pigment which drove demand further for that stuff but also for other colors that you could then apply to ceramics which means that you have to learn how to make different kinds of pigments and chemicals and the blues are an interesting color um there, there a lot of different cultures around the world have come up with these very persistent synthetic blues um the uh, chinese cultures have one there, there's one from the maya the egyptians have one all roughly sort of chemically similar with some variations and these are this is very sophisticated material science that they're doing it's very sophisticated chemistry in a period that that um at least for me like as a person who's really interested in the history of science because I cover this stuff um you wouldn't necessarily associate with uh sophisticated material science or chemistry, but they're really doing the hardcore stuff that still lasts today. That if you go look at, um, you know, Mayan artifacts, you're still looking at the blue that they had. And it basically looks the same as the blue when they applied it to the surfaces of whatever they were using to ornament. And so trying to understand how those things works then leads people to make other colors. And then those other colors lead to that design. So that, I mean, that's sort of one example that I kind of love in the, the world of, um, you know, beautiful dishware
1: yeah yeah that's a great example and also um I think that explanation that you gave also harkens back to one of the main ideas of the book about color as a technology um which you sort of walk the reader through um by looking at archaeological examples. Could you say a little bit more about the first pigments and and what you learned about them?
0: yeah i think and i, I would I'd say too before i before I go off on that when we talk about color, sometimes we're talking about being able to look, you know, out our window or go out on a hike and see the spectacular colors of the world around us and the the, um, the you know beautiful blue sky and green trees or the beautiful red browns of the of California or, or you know the, the all these these colored things that lo- exist in the natural world, illuminated by the all these photons streaming off of this star that our planet's in orbit around, and and there's that there there are those colors. And There is that thing that we would call color, different wavelengths length, of light or different energy levels of photons, whatever. However, you want to use that. And then those, all those photons bounce off of things, and the, that interaction has color also that our eyes can perceive. But then there's also these colors that we make, um, sometimes from those materials and sometimes from things we come up with in a lab or a workshop. And one of the um, the place, one of the places that the book starts, it has multiple starting points. But one is this um, is a, a cave. Uh, in South Africa, on the on the coast, um, called Blombos, and um, this cave has been a, a site of a, a lot of incredible archaeological finds. Some of the first early ornamentation, like beads that people made to ornament themselves, or the first what they describe as the first sketch that human beings made—the earliest, first is hard to say because, of course, there could be older examples out there that haven't found yet. But the first one found, the oldest one found, um, which is some scratches put on a on a piece of rock. Um, but uh, but in this place. Um, they also found uh, from something like 10,000 years ago, but aging is hard to do, uh, abalone shells that had been maybe even smoother on the inside and had a rock, a piece of rock that came with them that was obviously smoothed enough so that it would fit the inside of the curve of the shell. You know what an abalone looks like? It's sort of, a you know, you can imagine kind of a cup shape or a bowl shape it has this nacreous smooth interior. And then also on the inside, especially in a ring around the inside of both of these the archaeologists found um ochre uh iron oxide, the you know reddish material, and they they uh, infer from the circumstances of what they have that what they found was a paint making workshop. It was a place where where the people who were using this cave as shelter um would acquire ochre, which is a naturally occurring rock that's really crumbly and it'll stain things different colors if you get it on you or on a surface and grinding it to a very specific pigment size because pigment size is part of uh, excuse me particle size because the size of a particle has a lot to do with whether it'll mix into a good binder and hold together and also what color it'll reflect or absorb um so they were doing very specific work here to grind ochre down and use it as an ornament as a thing where they were going to add color to other things and uh and so th- it's probably not the oldest place where you could find examples of, of human beings who've, you know, put colored stuff on a wall or something to make it a color, but it's the first place, it's the oldest place that they found examples of, to prove that they were doing it as a, as a technology, as you say, as a, um, as material, um, that people were making. And, uh, and as in so many cases, the color and the use of color becomes a proxy for um, for other kinds of science and in, in this case it's used the use of ochre in general as a either as a body ornament or as a as an artistic expression or ritual or ceremonial um, uses becomes a an example of a high-level cognition human level human type cognition an example like this is a moment archaeologists and anthropologists are able to say that we can say well think animals that are like humans are being human because they are grinding mm-hmm. up this rock to make a color and in fact to make multiple colors because there are different mineralogically different kinds of ochre and because you can treat them differently with heat and particle size and, and get different colors from them that then you can make into the ornamentation or the body ornament or you know decoration whatever you're using so that's an example too of you know, what becomes the priority is making different colors there is having what's called a gamut or a palette because that that's meaningful in some way. And then, you know, you, we can go off and try to understand why it's meaningful, why red would be a high priority color for early humans because it represents blood or represents menstruation or um, in some studies. And we can talk about these later in linguistics. There are um, folks who find that in cultures as cultures develop color words in their languages after words for sort of dark colors and bright colors or colors on the you know, things that are more like black and things that are more like white. The kind of one of the earliest sets of words that develops are often in describing things that are reddish. and You can tell evolutionary just so stories about why that might be, but it's clearly a high priority color. And here's this example in South Africa of the place where yeah, this is the color that they were making there. These reds, reds, purples, and yellows, basically.
1: What were some of the ancient ideas about color? Um, And can you tell us a little bit about the history of how, um, yeah, of of how humans started to understand color and pigments over time? I think you spend a bit of time in the book um, talking about ancient Greek and Arabic understandings and and sort of a rivalry. Yeah.
0: Greek philosophers who, you know, wrote a lot about everything, It's, it's sort of, A cliche place to go back to but uh, including writing stuff about color and so did a lot of roman philosophers and philosopher scientists trying to understand what would eventually come to be called the spectrum what isaac newton would eventually name the spectrum and what they were really trying to do was come up with like an order for color to try to figure out what which color came after which and and you can this seems um a little bit it seems like a weird question to us today because we have this framework of the electromagnetic spectrum and wavelength or energy and uh, quantum physics fo- photons. So we sort of get like, Oh, well it's, it's part of a you know color visible color is part of a continuum of energy wavelengths that includes x-rays and ultraviolet and stuff like that. And we can put it into a larger theoretical framework, but they didn't have this theoretical framework. So, They were trying to understand things like, well, we know that there are artisans out there who have all these different colored materials that they can make into paints and dyes and things like that. But we don't really know how those connect to the colors of a rainbow, for example. That it's possible to look up and see these phenomena in the sky and say, well, what's that order? And which colors do we even see in that? Because the, the colors of the rainbow that, again, that Newton would eventually identify, you know, mid 1600s are are in some senses arbitrary um he, he put the lines between colors and the, the red orange yellow green indigo blue violet but not every culture has done that over time um and in, I, I don't know when you see a rainbow when i see a rainbow i don't see all those colors like they're not the ones i mean i see the yellow and i see the red and it's not because i have have normal color vision my color vision is pretty normal it's just like oh i don't really make the same distinction there that Isaac Newton did. Isaac Newton's a lot smarter than me, so maybe he knows better. But but, but what the so the, so the the ancient Greeks would would do things like well maybe color is a combination and also they didn't so they didn't know how pigments combined with each other and they didn't know how light combined with each other how light combined with itself either they didn't have any theoretical framework for any of that so they were taking good guesses at it they would say well maybe it goes from like white to black and then if you mix in sort of green and red that makes all the other colors. And any other color that you see, that's just an illusion, but those are the real colors. And then other people come in and disagree. And so, you know, Aristotle and Plato, but there are things about this. And, and then, um, they would try to describe, like, oh, well, maybe we see rainbows because the, there's light coming out of our eyes and bouncing off of rain. And that's what that is. Or maybe it's different, you know, different kinds of, we didn't know what reflections were. So anyway, all of this science gets to, um, in the, about the same time I was talking about earlier, so that sort of early hundreds when the um, when the Abbasids and then other folks in the Arab world are starting to acquire uh, texts from the ancient world and translate them into, from Greek, Latin, um, into Arabic, uh, they're also improving on them they were also doing a lot of their own science and their own experimental work to try to figure out, well, this doesn't make sense, so what does make sense? And, and, the, and figuring out what a rainbow was was one of the key things that they were working on. It's trying to understand, well, what, what is making this rainbow? Um, and in the process, they discover a lot, of, uh, a lot of the important fundamentals of optics that we would consider optics today, the fact that light can both refract reflect and refract that it can move through a material and change. And then it can also bounce off of a subs of a substance or a surface. Um, and, and it's, it's coming up with all of that work that begins to distinguish the way light and different colors of light behave kind of on their own in the universe versus the way when they, when they're bouncing off of a surface or the, when we color a surface, what the differences there are, um, and this was something that even um, once all that work sort of gets to uh, that work finally gets to kind of Europe and moves from the south to the north. And there, the medieval color thinkers are trying to develop their own color orders and color spaces. These charts, essentially, either really drawing them or just thinking about them of like, well, what what are the axes that you can describe color on? Because it's not just what color it is, but it's how much color there is and how, how bright it is, too. And how many dimensions does that space have? Um, and there are a lot of thinkers in the middle ages trying to figure this out too, all of that work finally lands, you know, on Newton's desk, basically, um, when he goes on the run and, uh, from a pandemic and hides in his, in his mom's house, um, and isolates himself for a year, which a lot of us can probably relate to at this point. Um, and figures out that if he, with this new optical technology called a prism, um, can break sunlight into, what looks like a rainbow, and that 's what he describes as a spectrum. He realizes that the light that he can see out a window is actually made of all of these different colors, and that was a real that, uh, he, that was um, a a leap a conceptual scoop. other people had broken light into all those colors, but for him to realize that that's how that 's how light was mixing that light could mix basically in in a in a similar way, not the same way, but a similar way to the way pigments and other colors would mix too and there was even philosophical argument about whether colors should be allowed to mix it was, it was seen as as um, For some folks like Pliny, it's like, oh, there's there's some colors that are high and exalted and they shouldn't be mixed together because that makes them cheap somehow. There's all these weird value judgments that different philosophers will put on the way colors get used, including a longstanding – I'm digressing a little bit – but including a longstanding fight that extended from Aristotelian philosophers all the way through to the um, Middle Ages and to the Renaissance and up through uh, – neoclassical architecture, this war between form and color, this feeling that some thinkers had that actually the shapes of things, that lines were somehow philosophically superior to the colors that they would have. In Rome, a lot of the things that they built, statuary and and, uh, stone constructions were actually painted as well. They were very colorful, which was knowledge that kind of got lost when archaeologists would find it later and artists would find it later. And that color would be wiped off of it because that's one of the first things that goes are these surface treatments. And they, and it, there came to be this thinking that there was some purity to having something that was just white, um, but just with lines. And then that got associated in later times with the, with notions of racial purity, with the, the political implications of something that was white versus other, versus other colors. Um, and then, you know, finally coming to this place where you think, well, that's just dopey that there's no philosophical connection between, the form and color are truth and beauty, you know, they're, they're sort of, again, they are locked together. You can't really isolate one from the other.
1: Yeah. but humans are always trying to stratify things or.
0: <laughs> that is our move. Yes.
1: Yeah. Um, and that's kind of interesting. That takes us to a point that like color is, um is in- integral to culture. Um. Can you talk a little bit about how science helped to turn color into culture and, you know, what sorts of technologies or mediums, that progressed through.
0: What you know, what ends up happening is that you you have a a culture that values color for it. That values colors of things as it, as it makes them desirable. Makes an object desirable if it has a different color, and that's true. That becomes true of being able to dye textiles. I was talking about the Silk Road earlier, and of course the ceramics, porcelain were part of the Silk Road. They were part of the maritime silk road primarily because they're heavier, so they're harder to transport but silk literal silk was part of the silk Road moving colored fabrics. A dye is a uh, a pigment that will also attach to organic things in a way so dyes had pigments in them sometimes you have to add but th- these words again t- mean different things so textile people will have will scream about my definition of a dye there in a way that um, like a chemist who thinks of a dye might not but. Um, But the the issue becomes what ingredients do you put? What are the colored ingredients that you put into these things and where do you get them from to make them stick to whatever you want them to attach to? And that becomes increasingly important um, as it starts to be the way that you um, can convey other ideas. So in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance, for example, as um, artists were expected to also be kind of... uh, their own chemists they were making their own paints primarily there were there were providers of colors color men um who who were acquiring the pigments from in the same way that you acquire spices from around the world as part of a trade process um venice was a real center for a lot of these for example um and but then the question of how to use them to convey certain effects became part of being able to do good art So a question of like, well, do you, if you're trying to convey dimensionality, one of the things that the brain, that our brains will do to us is that we see, we think that things that are brighter are closer to us. So if you can figure out how to control light and dark brightness in a painting, you can make things look forward or look backward. Um. And there was for a while kind of an argument in the artistic world in the painting world about whether it was better to build from the dark colors or blackness first to build from shadow into color with, um, or to start with a white ground and then color in the shadows, for example, um, and that went back and forth for you know a hundred years or whatever of trying to figure out um, well, how do we use these pigments that we have and these paints that we make them into paints um, to convey The idea that something had volume (laughs) um because that's that's a trick right because you're making something that's flat and in fact it 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 sort of really didn't get solved until the uh the, the they'd been invented before oil paints had been invented around for a long time but they were kind of rediscovered as a way to convey volume because you can have some translucency with the paint itself with oils that you don't have with other materials so you can start to um lay lighter colors on top of darker ones. And you can convey some dimensionality with the paint itself with an oil. Um, and it's that kind of that kind of advance that when the when the oil paints then also can be taken outside because you figure out a way to transport them. That you're not just mixing them in, you're not you don't just have an assistant mixing them in your studio for you or you're mixing them in your studio, but you can actually buy the paint pre-made in a like a parchment bladder, they would call it. It was like a tube for the first time. That's the thing that enables impressionists to go out in the world and start painting things in the colors that they see them instead of the colors that they think they're supposed to be. So you get all the weird, the famous, like, you know, Cathedral Rouen stuff that Monet painted where he's painting this one building at different times of day um, and painting it in the colors that he's seeing because of the light that's bouncing off of it, off of those surfaces, instead of just painting the stone the color that his brain and his preconceptions are saying, well, that's, you know, that's brown or whatever. So I've got to paint brown with some reflections and you can see those, um, those paintings in a series look almost like an Andy Warhol, um, where, you know, of all these different colors um, and some of them are really lurid and kind of almost like a joke. They're, they're funny to look at, but that's because what the brain is doing with color and light is this complicated calculation of what the color of the illumination is and trying to infer what the color of the surface is that you're looking at, and usually it works really well. It's, it's a property called color constancy, and it's a thing that the that the impressionists were playing with a lot of um, trying to do what the, the what the brain was before the brain kind of got involved to say, well, these are the colors you're seeing, but here's what they really mean. Um, and you could start to do all that once once the colors were portable enough to take them outside to a place and paint at a particular time and start to move fast. And you have a a. a slightly different effect too that the than the, the, the neo-impressionists that folks like sarah get into um with trying to not lose the color that it, it, when you mix pigments just like newton and the arab scientists were trying to figure out mixing pigments you start to get darker colors too because pigments are what are called subtractive versus uh, uh, versus additive or alum- there's a difference between like Light is an emissive thing if you're looking at a screen or something, the screen is beaming light at you. And when you you can combine those colors in a very different way, um, like red, green and blue become the primaries there. Then if you're trying to combine colors, pigments on a page magazine, folks know CMYK, um, cyan, magenta, yellow and black. Um, But if you remember trying to mix colors when you were in elementary school and you had like tempera paints or something and the teacher would say like, oh, blue and yellow make green and you would mix blue and yellow and get brown right? And then you, the, the teacher would say, oh, well, red and blue make purple. And you would mix red and blue and you get brown, <laughs> right? Um, and then you keep trying to mix it and it gets browner and browner until you just have that sludge on your page. That, that's because the, the, what pigments do is reflect some colors and absorb others. And if you mix them together, they start to absorb more and more of that color. Um, and, uh, and so with the Neo Impressions were trying to do was use pigments to make the eye mix those colors instead of have the pigments mix directly and lose it. So they would try to achieve a kind of a luminosity or brightness. Um, because at about the same time as they were working, um, there were people who were trying to work on the, the weird, almost illusion, optical illusion effects that happen when we see two colors adjacent to one another. Those colors have an effect on each other just because of the way the eye and the brain work. Um, there was a, a famous chemist named um, Maurice Eugene Chevroul who um, ran a particularly significant um, furniture and uh, textile company in France one of the big national industries who uh, who realized that there were that he could basically put rules on like if you put two colors next to each other they will pick up the eye will see the the in one of those colors the contrasting colors of the color that it's adjacent to so when Newton put his linear spectrum into a wheel, that was the beginning of people trying to say that some colors, if you're opposite, if those colors are opposite each other on these various wheels and people built a bunch of different ones, then those are, those are contrasting or complementary colors, red to green and blue to yellow are the famous ones. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so you see those in the colors that you would see on a page or something. And Chibruel tried to codify that for, for use in art and design. And then some artists tried to use those rules to get better effects to say, like, oh, well, maybe we can use that to get to see some weird stuff on a, you know, in a painting. Or those become the rules. Rules. I'm, I'm making scare quotes around the word rules. But, of course, you can see that because this is audio. But um, rules uh, for, like, you know, color um, in for color theory. Right. And using colors in art.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So even very early on, as lots of pigments and colors are being developed, there's there's this understanding that that what we see and and manipulations of of the paint itself um, interact in this way.
0: Yeah, and in the period where where scientists are trained, the sort of 1800s when scientists where at the same time as there's this um, this explosion of of scientifically created. Organic and inorganic pigments. So chemistry is making all these new colors in the 1800s. It's part of the industrial revolution. Part of the revolution, like oh, we have mi- textile mills now, and these you know we want to put colors on these fabrics and things like that. At the same time, scientists are trying to figure out well, how does the eye actually see color? Um, and there was this big fight between trying to understand, saying like oh well, the eye is maybe the eye is perceiving like that Newtonian spectrum in some way and that order of colors and how would it how do you make all those colors from what's obviously some biological some biochemical limit in the eye because you, you don't see an infinite number of, of colors how do you create those and trying to understand what would it eventually become the idea of trichromatic vision of, of like that you can um of trichromacy that there are three somethings in the eye we don't know what yet because we don't have that science yet either back then they're saying this but there's three somethings in the eye that can detect three specific kinds of colors but a range of them and if you mix those together you get all the other colors too there's that idea but then there's this whole other team of folks primarily coming off of a, a a german tradition of romantic philosophy that's saying no 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 actually it's not those newtonian seven colors but in fact um some set of contrasts that are made between blue and yellow and then between red and green and those are the anchor colors um because um set um a, 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 a philosopher think about this name ewald herring um if you think about it try to imagine being able to see a reddish green or a bluish yellow he said you can't because those are perceptually not available to you because those are like anchor colors essentially And that argument that argument to some extent continues even today because the there are ways that the brain does do calculations between those colors or those or colors at least are in line with the way that people would think about blue and A yellow and a red and a green um, neurologically neurobiologically Um, but it's not the only way that we do those calculations because of course the human does have three specific receptors for seeing colored colors of light um, that basically peak in sort of red green and blue wavelengths of light and then combines those in a complicated mathematical way too but nobody knew any of that so they had to infer it from doing experiments with spinning tops and colored paper and shining light into people's eyes and getting them to draw pictures on a Triangle with red, green, and blue in the, in the corners and <clears throat> say which colors they could see and which colors they didn't. That most of that research involved finally realizing that not everybody saw color the same way, that there were some people who are what we would call color blind today, but people who have, you know, non color normal vision and trying to figure out, well, if you, if you see colors this way, what, what color, what colors are you not seeing? And then how do you, how would that fit into a bigger you kind know, of heuristic model of how color might work?
1: That's great. And that sort of anticipated one of the questions I was thinking of asking you. But I do want to go back to, so you mentioned that you were really fascinated with um, this one particular white, um, titanium dioxide white. Before we get into that, um, it seems like um, in the telling of the story of color over time, white hues are pretty important. So would you mind telling us about some of the early dueling white pigments? So lead white and zinc white?
0: Yeah, there's a, it's a, it's an amazing... A uh, story of human ingenuity and the lack thereof. Um, <laughs> that at least as far back as as Rome, as ancient Rome, probably also ancient Egypt, uh, people knew how to make a white pigment out of lead. This is lead white, and then the color would be white. Lead. The stuff would be white lead. The color is lead white, or vice versa. And basically, what you do is you you get strips of lead and you put it in a in a barrel or a jar propped up over a pool of vinegar and then you seal that up and then you heat it and when you do that the the vinegar um aerosolizes and then combines with the lead and creates this uh, basically a lead carbonate crust um on the what you know it eats the lead and it makes this white stuff and you can get that out you can knock it off and you can clean it and it turns into a really good white pigment. But um, That comes with a lot of problems, which are lead. Lead's really, really super toxic. Um, But this was the best way to make this. Also, the way that you made the the, the whole process was gross because in addition – because you've got to heat the vinegar somehow. So what they would do – and this was true into the 1800s, late 1800s even – was there would be these big factories where they would put the lead buckles, they called them, into barrels with the vinegar and then surround it with – like the leavings from a sawmill, you know it's not quite sawdust, but the the shavings the wood so just old wood, basically, and a manure, and then leave that so the manure and the wood would decompose, and then that would give off the heat that would heat the barrels, aerosolize the vinegar, make the lead into lead white. You can imagine that this did not smell great, um, but this was the way that that like the the basic pigment. For, for not just white, but a lot of other pigments and a lot of other paints would get made because you mix this stuff into other colors, too, to make them lighter and to make them more opaque. Because what you're trying to get out of a out of a paint, especially, um, is not just the color, but also brightness and opacity. You want it to cover up what's below it, and you want it to be bright enough so that you can see what the color is. And, um, and those are chemical and optical properties. Uh, like... And, and they matter for cost, you know something that's more opaque means you can use less of it because you don't have to do another coat to cover it. Um, but also they all depend on the refractive index of the material, and lead white is a really good refractive index, um, but also hugely toxic and and by the but it was and it was used throughout history. Um, it had a little bit of a problem, which is if you use it outside if it it's exposed to any kind of like sulfur fumes, it'll turn black. But it was also part of um like a key ingredient in cosmetics so in the makeup worn primarily by women in cultures all the way from I, I mentioned the Tang dynasty but in, in China Tang dynasty up through Elizabethan England like when you see those pictures of of um Queen Elizabeth um and she's got like the really high bangs and the white pancake makeup on the pa- the pancake is lead white and the reason her bangs are high is that it makes your hair fall out um and it does all kinds of other horrible stuff too so like women women in England were warned not to wear lead white based cosmetics when they went to the the baths in bath the roman which has the springs because hot springs tend to be sulfurous so they would go in with white makeup on and it would come out black um it would you know they would look really scary and also the stuff you know kills you and so by um by the 1800s it was becoming clear that the people who worked in lead white factories had all sorts of um uh, neurological problems um and Fertility issues, kids were born with um, with birth issues, um, and and this actually gave rise to it. The same in the in the industrial revolution, the thing that led to uh, like occupational health as a field was looking at what was going on with people who were working on lead white. Um, and there was a, a competitor. Um, eventually, people figured out that you could also make through another chemical process a zinc white, um, and there was a a competition for a while. There was a kind of famous sort of paint maker chemist in France who really thought that zinc white was a solution, but he, um, but it was much more expensive to make because it was kind of the new technology. So he finally started painting parts of his, when he would get a contract to paint a house, he would paint parts of the house with zinc white and parts of the house with lead white and not tell his people who were asking him specifically for lead white. And then eventually the lead white would start to chalk or spall off um, because that's another thing that happens with lead is that the, the chemistry changes. It forms a soap, um, not the kind of, that you wash with, but like soap is the salt of a fatty acid. There would be chemical changes in the lead white that was on the wall. It would start to come off. And then his customers would come and complain and say, you you, you know, the paint's coming off. And you'd say, ah, but that one part that's not coming off, that's zinc white. Ah, ah, Now we want zinc white. And eventually people came came around to it and the French government gave him this big award. And because the, the French government started contracting for it, the price of zinc white went down. Um, and people started using it too, but it doesn't have the same optical properties as lead white does. So even painters would sort of choose, be like, oh, I'll try um, one paint or the other, but it doesn't cover as well. It doesn't adhere as well. It doesn't have the same properties that when I move it with a brush, <clears throat> that's called the fixotropic, which is a word that I just fell in love with, you can imagine, um, that, that you can word? push. That's a great word, right? I mean, it's got an X in it, which is cool already. Uh, and you can push it with the brush and it'll move. But then when you stop pushing it with the brush, it doesn't move stays where you want it on the surface that you're painting so anyway there's thousands of years of history with um, with lead white and it's a it becomes the subject of uh, huge conflicts between Europe and America uh, the Americans try to build their own lead white production um, just after the Revolutionary War and uh, when the war of 1812 comes it's one of the things that there's like industrial espionage and fighting about between England and the United States with the the English have the market cornered on lead white and they don't want the americans to build their own but eventually there's no lead coming from england because there's the war of 1812 so the americans have a market but they need all the lead to make bullets so the guy who's making the lead white has to go build his own lead mine (laughs) um this is the this is how important color is it becomes this thing that drives cultural economic forces all the time but hugely toxic and a big problem and by the late 1800s it's becoming clear especially to the massive um consortium that basically owns the the um the lead white business that this stuff has a real problem and this is the same problem that's in lead paint today why we don't want kids to eat lead paint it's the same problem in leaded gasoline the same lead the same you know um neurological toxicities jumping back to the late 1700s in this period of incredible scientific um innovation among like English priests who didn't want to be priests and wanted to be scientists, but there were no jobs as scientists. One of those people had discovered without knowing it, what it was in a, um, in the leet of a mill in, uh, in Cornwall in England, the leet is the little, the kind of small canal channel that leads to the, the wheel that's being turned, um, a, a new kind of dirt. And um, he didn't know what it was. This guy's name is William Gregor. Was some friends who lived in this town, called Menachin had sent him a sample of it and he did a bunch of tests on it and determined like it was definitely a new thing he didn't know what it was he named it Menachinite. he got it published in a, then one of the first scientific journals at the time 1797 i think um Krell's and Allen the German journal and uh and then everybody forgot about it and then a few years later a much more famous chemist the guy who invented analytical chemistry in fact um got another sample from another part of the world and he also determined that it was a brand new thing but he named it something a little more Um, his branding was better. He'd had a a great success naming another element after a Titan of myth, Uranus. He named an element Uranium. And now he had this new one. He knew it was another new element. This is a period of time where people were discovering new elements all the time. It was really cool. He said, I'm going to name it after Titans again. I'm going to call this one Titanium. Um, It was the ninth most common element in the earth's crust. It's really turned out to be really common stuff and nobody knew what the hell else to do with it. Like that's interesting. So this is, you know, we're we're uh, hundred fifty years away from using it to make like the SR seventy one Blackbird and the Russians using titanium to make entire submarines out of and stuff like that and and artificial hips. We're not there yet. It's just a metal that nobody knows what to do with. And in fact, it's a little bit. It's seen as in as you get to the into the eighteen hundreds, it's seen as something of a of a problem because a lot of the iron that people want to make steel out of in the eighteen nineties, um. Has is titaniferous? Has titanium? These titaniferous ores are a question. Like, well, how do we get the titanium out? You know, what's our smelting process to get the titanium out to make good steel? It's especially true in the titaniferous ores of the Adirondacks, um, which are a, a, a seen as a source of, of good steel in the 1880s and 1890s. Um, and a which is when a, an engineer named August Rossi is asked to try to figure out um, how to make good titaniferous ore steel and he not only figures out how to do it but becomes something of a of an expert and sets up a consultancy in new york um, working with ores metallurgy in general um, and he eventually comes to think in the 1890s that in fact um, titaniferous ores are an advantage that he can make what he starts to call ferrotitanium. If he's got enough power if he can get a if he can get the right kind of high-powered smelter He can make really good, like rail steel with titanium in it, and it'll be lighter and stronger. At the time, if you were, if you had kind of an innovative, uh, materials, high energy startup, which is what he was working on building, you went to the Silicon Valley of the day, which as I'm sure everybody who's going to listen to this will know was, of course, Niagara Falls. Because Niagara Falls is where there was electricity and a lot of it. So if you wanted to do the then new science of electrochemistry, using electricity to make all kinds of new materials that wouldn't be possible to make otherwise because you're ripping apart the ionic structure of atoms that otherwise wouldn't either come apart or go together easily, and you're going to do that with more and more electricity, pumping electricity through it, um, you need that power. You need a power source, which was the false. So, for example, this is the beginning of the company Alcoa because aluminum, which occurs naturally, really tightly bonded to oxygen, is not that useful as an oxide. But if you can rip that oxide that oxygen off, you get aluminum foil and aluminum. Girders and aluminum, everything else. Um, so this is the place where they're also coming up with the first synthetically created abrasive, and it's the place where they figure out how to do how to cheaply um, take salt and break it into sodium and chloride, uh, which means that you get cheap bleach, which is a good thing for the textile industry and for cleaning. But it also makes municipal water systems possible, essentially, because you can add a little chlorine and clean the water for the first time. You get like clean municipal water systems. Um, so it's an action-packed place, scientifically speaking. Rossi goes there and tries to make uh, ferrotitanium and sell it. And the ferrotitanium part of the business doesn't actually go that well. But as part of what he is doing, he realizes that there's a side product, a byproduct on the way to making titanium steel, which is this beautiful, fine, white, finer than talc, bright powder of titanium dioxide. His process has, has come to that as a As one of the chemical byproducts and Rossi being a smart guy and knowing what was going on in the in the pigment world with lead white, mixes it with salad oil with you know with vegetable oil because that's a common binder for paint and uh it puts it on his finger and runs it across a piece of paper and realizes he's got something and this is nineteen o five and by nineteen oh eight he's got a business um, making titanium dioxide pigment the some Europeans figure out a similar process at the same time. World War One holds things up, but basically by the end of World War I, um, this is a pigment that's coming to supplant um, lead white. And uh, the, a, a, then one of the few um, paint companies at the time called DuPont gets interested in it and starts using it as the basis for all kinds of like high-tech futuristic paints, um, being able to make paints that uh, can go on, DuPont gets involved in a consortium with General Motors. General Motors is competing with Ford. So when Henry Ford is sort of sarcastically saying they can have it in any color they want as long as it's black, there were actually other colors that you could get Model T's in, but primarily it was black because that was the color that would dry the fastest and solidify. And he wanted to move the, you know, the assembly line moving fast is like the central tenet of Fordism, right? General Motors and DuPont were able to figure out how to make paints that were different colors titanium dioxide involved here that would also drive fast and so you could get different colored GM cars at the same time competing with Ford. Um, it becomes a way to, for the designers of the, the late industrial revolution of the 1920s when the engineers aren't really keeping up with coming up with new in- inventions every year, the way that the companies that are making stuff get people to buy new things all the time is by making them come in different colors, essentially. And it's... Pigments like titanium dioxide and new new inorganic pigments that become available in the early 20th century um, that uh, that may call that possible. That's the chromatic revolution that I mentioned.
1: And that's a great example of how color and commerce you know intersect. So there's some really fascinating stuff in your book about the interplay of language and color. Can you share about um, the work of these linguists uh, Paul Kay and Brent Berlin and you know what they learned about studying speakers of many different languages?
0: yeah the work of Berlin and K is one of those fundamental um fundamental moments in in linguistics and also cognition and also color science. It's a fascinating triangle or even more i don't know how many sides this polygon has because everybody relies on it but basically they were trying to understand that that dorm room question that i that I mentioned earlier at the top like do is your red my red and and more importantly, if your language doesn't have the word for red, do you still see it? And this is a question that has run through philosophy and, and linguistics for centuries. Um, uh, David Hume has a famous uh, passage where he's trying to—Hume primarily thought that—was trying to say that people had to have examples to come up with new examples from. You had to have prior understanding of something before you could figure out what might follow from it, and um, that's a gross simplification. Hume, I'm really sorry to the philosophy majors out there, but, but he's got—but one of his few exceptions— is thinking about color he says i'm pretty sure if you showed somebody a bunch of different shades of blue in in kind of order from lightest to darkest let's say but you left one out you know if you had a color array had 10 squares of color but you left out square seven whatever somebody would be able to imagine what that shade was. They'd be able to imagine what he called the missing shade of blue. And the missing shade of blue now is the famous metaphor. Like, can you envision a color you've never seen before? And Hume thought, yes. Uh, But there's a a strain of, uh, in linguistics, thinking of something called linguistic relativism, um, uh which is the uh the idea that if you don't have a word for something you can't conceive of it. And it's this is hotly contested and it's probably not not right because people come up with new ideas all the time, right? you come up with compound words to describe stuff. But but the idea there was like if you don't have a concept for something, how would <clears throat> how would a culture that didn't think of time the same way that Western Europeans did think about relativity? Could you come up with relativity with that with a different concept of time? A good question. Um and so Berlin and Kay, in their field work as linguists, had noticed that there were languages out there that didn't have as many what are called basic color terms as English did, because English was their first language. And a basic color term is one of those words that only means a color. And this is a fascinating issue in sensory, just thinking about the senses in general. So I'm thinking about something like red, which if I say red, that's not a metaphor, right? That's not that's not uh I'm not saying lavender which is the color of the lavender flower or I'm not saying turquoise which is the color of turquoise right I'm saying red because that's red cuz red stuff is red and if I, and I can give you what wavelength red is roughly but that doesn't mean anything cuz what is that wavelength that wavelength is things that are red if you have color normal vision and you have human color photoreceptors and that's how you see something is red um so it's a basic term. It means itself. And this is true This is true for things like smell and things, too. Like, if I try to tell you something smells like a pineapple, that doesn't really help you because I said, you say, well, what does pineapple smell like? I could tell you what the organic molecule is that smells pineapple, but that doesn't really help you because if you ask what that smells like, i say, well, it smells kind of like a pineapple. So it's really hard for human beings to talk about our sensory experiences. That's the point I'm trying to make there. What Berlinian case started, you say, well, that, it's really interesting that not every language has as many color turns so they decided to do this experiment where initially they took some like two dozen bilingual people in the california bay area which is where they were working when they came up with this and and essentially showed them pictures of colors uh, which they got from a place called munsell colors which is a famous uh, one of the people who came up with a very complicated way to architect how all the colors fit together in the way people see them um, and use that as a system to say yeah that's the color i mean so we you and i could Get the same Munsell color, and we would at least know we were talking about the exact same color. So they showed them these cards with Munsell colors and said, "Like, well, which colors are which to you? Which all fit in the same group? Which ones do you have words for? Which ones do you not?" And and they said that they'd found a um, a pattern. What they eventually came away saying is, languages evolve as languages develop as languages acquire more and more words. They acquire color words in a certain order, Um, and that was shocking um the idea was like first you have black and white then you have black white and red and then if you had another word it would probably be a blue and then if you have another word it would either be a green or a purple and then and then and then, and they sort of built this built out this model and it came kind of at the same time um <clears throat> as the idea of, of deep grammar the idea that the brain that the human brain has grammar kind of built in and as hardwired um that it's in the in the firmware so they they thought there was a chance that they had found like deep color that they'd found a, a brain they wrote they write this it's just a possibility they, they don't push this too hard they write this in the book that they'd found like the the firmware architecture for color in the brain so even different than the way the eye works with the three color photoreceptors sort of talking to each other and then sending all those signals back to a first synapse and then back to the visual cortex nobody really knows how colors map in the in the brain itself in the various color centers of the brain There's a lot of arguing about that, even even still about whether there's specific places in the brain that represent specific colors, light of specific wavelengths, versus talking to each other. This is still being studied and worked out. What Berlin and Kay thought they had is like the the cognitive architecture for it, and they immediately came in for a lot of criticism for a bunch of different reasons, especially because they were talking to people who were bilingual, so they they were folks who already knew um, uh, the color terms in another language. So then they had an even bigger version of the experiment. They sent out agents all over the world. Um, to do these same kind of tests, uh, the same kind of experimental interviews on native speakers in a bunch of different languages. And the uh, the pattern was a lot less clear when it came back. It seemed like basically you would evolve color terms. Um, first, you'd have sort of dark colors and light colors, and then you might have some reds and blues. And it, it, it was a little bit more confused. But what what became clear, though, is that no matter what language you a person spoke, they could identify, they would see. These, uh, they could see that the other color was different. They knew it was something different. And if you told them it had a name, they could start to use that name for it. And the, 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 the eyes worked the same. There wasn't that, there wasn't the, um, the huge disconnect, um, that the linguistic relativists, the, um, the, um, that's a theory called pure wharf hypothesis that like, um, that those two guys had kind of suggested might be the case. You could certainly see the colors. And, um, and in fact, they, they, uh, the Berlin and K even gave rise to a, a, a still extant bunch of linguists who try to figure out which color terms you use and how that affects color perception to this day. So, just as an example, um, there's a pretty fun study in uh, English, has the basic color term English has blue, but the, the blue green region of color vision is a scientifically very complicated one, partially for reasons of neuroanatomy, the way the the lens of our eye deals with blue, and the way that there are fewer of the blue-oriented receptors in our eyes, and um, and then also some cultural reasons too. So, blue-green or "gru" as a region is really troubling if you're trying to study color. Uh, English has blue and green as basic color terms. Blue is one of them. Russian has uh, basic terms for a light blue and a dark blue. If you show, if you do a test with uh, where you show people three blues like two colors two tiles that have a color blue and then you show them a third one and you ask them okay tell me if this is the same as that as these other two blues are different than the other two blues russian speakers can do that faster than english speakers and the theory is that they've got sort of more words more cognitive architecture for identifying blue than an english speaker does so there's clearly a lot more research to be done there and then there's a lot of fun work that you can do with babies who don't have any of the language but do have the color sensing um, apparatus, you know, they have the sensors in the brain, and which ones they'll look at for longer and which colors they identify as being different um, versus the same.
1: I also want to get to some of the interesting ideas that are towards the end of the book. Um, and I guess, you know, so I first when I first came across the chapter that digs into, you know, the the 2015 viral moment of the dress, I sort of, you know, rolled my eyes at it a little bit, but it turns out. No, no, you didn't really? Oh, man. Well, okay. I just remembered (laughs) it. And then I had to go look up the picture and I can't unsee what I saw the first time. But it is fascinating to me that researchers are using that to understand how different people perceive colors differently. Um, Can you tell me about some of the work that scientists have done around that? Yeah
0: well the, so this is the uh, you know just the, the fast recap is this thing this picture of a dress spread across the internet because when people looked at it they saw the dress as being two different colors two different groups it, there was this a a, a, a two a, a, the distribution got very clear very quickly some people looked at this picture and said that is a uh, a blue dress with black trim and some people said that is a white dress with brown trim and and it was the kind of thing where you couldn't understand how someone didn't see it the way you saw it uh you know it just couldn't it couldn't it it, it like it was like going to war it was like cognitive war and uh it was pretty weird um and uh, what what color did did you see it as
1: oh i saw it as golden white
0: really mm-hmm. yeah okay uh i i saw it as i saw the blue um and and nobody understood why that would be the case and so if you were a scientist studying color at the time all of a sudden you realize like oh man i think we're wrong about stuff um specifically it turned out that the thing i mentioned earlier about color constancy um the uh that that seeing an object under a certain color illumination didn't always work the brain didn't always guess right about what color the object was because that seemed to be what, the issue that was going on specifically uh, what time of day you thought you were seeing that color. And that became kind of the going hypothesis was that there is, if you look at what's called a, a, chroma, a map of chromaticity, if you look at a, a, a map of all of the colors that it's that are possible for a human being to see um, the, there is an, an, uh, an arc in that map in one of these specific maps, that traces the um, what's called blackbody radiation. This is one of the questions that gave rise to quantum physics, actually, which is if you heat an ideal, an idealized object that just absorbs heat and then gives off light as it heats up. You know, like if you melt metal, it goes from dull red to bright red to white. If you do that with an idealized object it goes through a certain set of colors and nobody really understood why. And the answer is that because energy gets absorbed in quanta, um, it's not a continuous process. It's not continuous. Like we think of wavelength. It's actually got steps and stairs. So that arc, the, 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 um, is also sometimes called the, the, um, the daylight axis because the sun is a black body radiator, but also the way the sun emits light through the atmosphere, which is full of water that has preferences for whether it emits or absorbs red light and blue light, um, will, uh, Go through kind of the colors of the day, the the sort of orangey stuff in the morning at dawn and then this clear, clear blue, white, clear yellow, white at noon, and then the colors of a sunset at the end of the day. And if you look at the picture of the dress and you think that it is taken at noon, if you think that the light is bright, clear white, then that is white light reflecting off a blue surface. But if your brain tells you, if your brain makes the leap and says, this is happening at sort of the end of the day, when the sun is lower, and the light is more bluish, and darker, and or it's in shadow, then that is bluish light coming off of a white surface. And people's brains apparently make that snap decision very quickly, and that it that came as a real surprise to like people who study color constancy who have been using computers essentially to generate algorithms for calculating color constancy color constancy in a video camera is white balance um it's saying like okay you camera I'm telling you that thing right there is white, and you can infer what everything else what the color of everything else is um so the way you know film used to work in film cameras was photographers would go out in the world and they knew they had to worry if they were like under fluorescent illumination, let's say, because that would look really green when they got it back to the dark room, But it wouldn't look green when they were there because their brains and eyes were filtering that, not filtering, but processing that out, essentially subtracting the illumination from the surface. And uh, which you couldn't do when you were looking at the picture of a dress on the screen. So it, it's it's blue, by the way. The real, dress is actually, the, real, the real dress is actually blue. And finally, a researcher in England finally, like, well, they started doing really fascinating stuff. They got the actual dress; like, they went and bought it. Um, it's also kind of a shiny fabric, and that might have had something to do with it too. Shine, uh, <clears throat> those kind of glossy effects have a whole other—that's a whole other thing. Um, it's one of the things that Plato thought made light. It's why the—it's why it's probably why Homer described the oceans as being wine dark. He was talking about sparkly, not the color of wine side thing um so when they took that dress and put it under different lighting so got very good led lights that they could control the red green and blue content of very precisely so you could make white light out with different ingredients essentially so the light would look white but it actually had different colors in it that the brain wouldn't see they could get people to see that dress any color they wanted to in fact they can do that with art too you can you can make people see um, these colors you can make people see colors that aren't aren't there but what this researcher said to me is like that doesn't really mean anything. No color is there. There's no color there. The colors are all in your head, being processed by this complicated thing where we, where our, like you know, proteins in our eyes are taking photons of different energy levels and bending in different ways and sending neural electric signals into our brains and our brains are going like, oh, that's that that signal means red, right? Everybody agrees that's red. Okay, it's probably red. Like there's no the the and and then you you sort of fall into this um, <clears throat> horrifying but also fun world of philosophy where you're. You're asking whether color is a qualia, uh, you know, whether it's a thing that an object actually possesses as an attribute or whether it's a thing that our brains manufacture.
1: I want to dig into that a little bit more. Um, can you tell me about how animators at Pixar are working to create special colors visible only in certain ways?
0: The folks at Pixar, first of all, were doing a lot of really interesting experiments with uh, with a new standard, basically, for, for projectors that could create colors in a gamut that was much closer to what the human eye can actually see, um, you know, the early days of color TV, for example, those the, the 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 television couldn't show as many colors as we could see. It would substitute other colors that weren't not the actual the real color out there in the world. To the extent that there are actually real colors out there in the world, I know I'm contradicting myself. Um, so this new standard, and and people know it as like four K UHD, all that kind of stuff, like there's super high definition, wide gamut, um, high dynamic range, which is how bright and how dark a screen can get. In in movie theaters, there's a Dolby Cinema was um, one of the people in the in the forefront of like having these gamuts and these this kind of levels of bright and dark be actually be able to project on the screen. So, um, like for example, in the movie Inside Out, uh, where Pixar uses color and light obviously um, maybe better than anybody else to convey emotion and, and narratively. And they'll do a thing where every movie has a, what's called a color map, a certain palette that the artist will use and they'll make every scene, will have a different map but, um, for which, which colors are going to be in that scene. Um, inside Out was the one where the inside of the um, girl's head, all of her emotions had different personalities and were sort of competing with each other. And um, they made that movie specially tuned in a sense to the new kinds of projectors that some people would be able to see it on so that the colors were incredibly heightened for them so the red of anger or the um or the the world of the imaginary friend bing bong which is this sort of hyper real um pastel world of balloons um initially that they that if that there would be more colors and they would be more vivid if you saw it on a certain projector than it was if you watch it at home let's say because tvs weren't aren't really up to that standard yet and uh and that was a narrative choice where some people would see essentially a different emotionally colored lowercase c, I guess, movie than others would, depending on what machine you watch it on. And the person I talked to there was talking about doing experiments and thinking about the um some of what we were talking about earlier, about the how if you see colors adjacent to each other, they take on the characteristics of, of the complement of the color they're next to. In that same field of Study when people were looking at that in the 1700s and 1800s, they also were thinking about afterimages, about when you look at a candle and you still see you see the opposite color of the candle in your in your eye, in your mind's eye when you look away. Um, and if you think about uh, like Jasper Johns uh, painting flags, which is the one where the American flag, but it's in green and black. Um, but then when you look away from it, the afterimage is the colors of the American of the United States flag as they're meant to be. He was using that for effect. And so these folks at Pixar were saying that they they could imagine being able to really really brightly in one scene hit your eye with um you know a super intense green, let's say. And then really saturate the eye with it and then in the next scene take it all away all at once, which is something that they can do with the projectors that they're using. So then the next scene you'd have a red that you would see in that scene but the red wouldn't be there the red wouldn't be present in the you know in the, in the ones and zeros of the of the movie or even on the screen it would only be in your mind's eye it would only be it would be a cognitive red let's say cognitive green um you know what would what are the the narrative or emotional ramifications of that, that they were asking which i thought was really remarkable beautiful idea
1: Yeah, it's really exciting. How has this book uh, changed how you think about color? Or or has the book changed how you think about color and how so?
0: Yes, writing the book definitely changed how I think about color. I was already very suspicious of like, oh, blue makes people think of nobility and honesty and white is purity. and Red is blood and honor. And I I never I always thought that was, you know, culturally deterministic kind of nonsense. And I'm I'm more convinced of that than ever. But um, but there is a, there were moments when if you th- think about colors being constructed in the brain a little bit too hard, you start to think that like, oh, well, actually what colors are are just ambient light reflecting off of surfaces and really just any color that I see is just a surface and it's not really there. It becomes possible, especially if you're prone to, uh, anxiety late at night to start to think that nothing is actually real (laughs) that you are not seeing anything in the world in fact and that the entire world is just a, a construct of however your cognition operates on color and maybe also form and so you have no way of knowing whether the stuff that you're seeing is actually stuff that's really out there and what does really out there mean anyway and that's something that let me just say i recommend not thinking about too hard because that will mess you up. I promise.
1: All right. Some good advice to leave the audience with. Well, thank you so much for sharing about your new book, Adam.
0: It is my pleasure.
1: Adam's book, Full Spectrum, is out May 18th. You can find it on our bookshelf along with links to purchase on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave a review. You can also find our Patreon page where you can support our podcasting crew by donating. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgauer, and me, Rochelle Saunders.